Welcome to Bonjour Bitch. My name is Charlotte and I'm many things, but most importantly for this podcast, I am multicultural and sometimes a bitch. We're going to talk about everything from relationships to daily life, all from a multicultural point of view. Each week, I'll be accompanied by the most amazing guests to delve further into topics that really affect us all. You'd better get ready for it, bitches. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. Um, Today, we will be discussing um, how to get your confidence back with the cosmetic doctor, ex-dentist, level three PT, that is Dr. Jessica Srivastava. Hi, Jessica. How are you? Hi, very good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. So let's get started. Tell me a bit about where your family originates from. So, as you know, a little bit of a mix. My mum is originally Ukrainian. Her um, grandparents were born in the Ukraine, but she's from Bolton. And my dad was born in South India. And then when he was two, came over to the UK and they located in Manchester. So a little bit of a mix. And then north, but they now live in Wales. Amazing. So do you speak Ukrainian? Sadly not. So this was a dilemma. And I don't know if you can let me know sort of what happened in your family, but my mum didn't want my dad to be excluded when we were growing up. So she never taught us Ukrainian because she thought that it would be, I don't know, she just didn't think that it would be a good thing when my dad couldn't speak it. Bearing in mind, we lived with my Ukrainian grandma. So she mainly spoke Ukrainian. So she would randomly say little words. So we'd pick up bits, but you wouldn't be able to speak a language. You wouldn't be able to speak it fluently. Um, and I think that's one of my mum's biggest regrets now, to be honest, um, is that she what didn't just teach us. I know, because it's such a lovely language. And obviously it's so close to Polish, to Russian. So we have big array of languages that we could theoretically understand. But yeah, yeah. nothing, sadly. A little bit of Welsh, that's about it, which is hardly very useful. <laughs> Oh, that's such a shame because see my parents, so my mum is English, my dad is French yeah, and they spoke a mix between the, but mainly English in the beginning because my mum didn't speak French right? and they made the conscious decision of each speaking their mother tongue to both of us Um, and my mum, you know, she's spoken on the podcast about it before, but she has said how difficult it is and it Mm. isn't easy and she understands that some parents give up in a way not in a judgmental way but you know she's very much like it is hard and when I look back at home video footage that my dad would film and my grandparents would film I refused to speak English to my mum because growing up in Geneva she was like the black sheep everybody else spoke French yeah yeah why you know when you're little you want to fit in you want to be like the mass you don't want to be original and so she'd speak to me in English and I'd answer to her in French. And wow. my mom had to literally, even though she understood everything I said, she had to be like, I don't understand, sweetie. Tell me in English. And, you know, when you're wanting a biscuit or you're wanting a toy or when you're little, it's very much demands. So I sort of figured out, well, if I want to get what I want, then I'd better ask for it in English. Yeah. Wow. But it got to the point where my parents were so strict about it. I thought they didn't understand each other. So I would translate between them because I thought, well, they're a bit daft. Like she speaks speaks French. They clearly don't understand each other. They need me to translate everything. Wow. And you know what? It's only when I was in my late teens where I'd already picked up Spanish and I was 
going to move to Italy when I was about 20. So I was a young adult and I moved to Italy and I picked up Italian within three months. Wow. And that's where I thought, okay, my parents gave me a huge, huge bonus in life. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd never valued it. And even now my husband's Spanish and we're five months pregnant with our first baby amazing and uh, thank you and we've already had the discussion several times of who's going to speak what language right and trying to you know he'll obviously speak Spanish I'm going to speak French and then my mum will speak English and then being in London in the UK she'll hear English a lot Mm -hmm. but we're going to send her to a bilingual primary school Mm -hmm. and with added classes even if it's just playtime, but added playtime or classes in the third language because we want to make sure that she's fully trilingual because yeah. I don't fancy giving up one of my two languages for her. Oh, you shouldn't have to, no. And exactly. if you think about it, French, English and Spanish, they're so international. With those three languages, you can do most things in the world nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're the best languages to learn, to be honest. I mean, even if I had learned Ukrainian, like, what would I be doing with it apart from speaking to my family, which is but lovely. But the thing in is, you would have, you would, like you said, you would have then been able to, overlaps. as yeah. a teen, learn Russian. Yeah. And yeah. then that could have potentially been, you know, very useful if, you know, with Russian clientele or things exactly, like that. Yeah. You know, they're things that it's not even so much the actual language that you learn. It's also the fact, I think, that you understand that you can think in different languages. You don't need Mm. to translate when you want to say something. You can dream in different languages. You can count in different languages. Really? Do you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, you associate a language to a person. Mm. So if I'm dreaming of my husband, I'll be dreaming in Spanish until somebody else comes into the dream with who I speak English. And then it'll start to branch out in different languages. Unless it's somebody who, like one of my best friends, he speaks the same three languages as I do and completely fluently. Mm -hmm. So if I'm dreaming of him, it'll be a constant mix of languages. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's a funny one. But anyway, (laughs) we're not here to talk about languages. Um, We're here to discuss about you and your career and your life and etc. So how did your career start out? Because I was reading up about you a bit. And so you're a cosmetic doctor now, but you used to be a dentist, but you're also a level three PT. So I mean, tell me more. (laughs) Everything. When I sort of Back in the day, I mean, the first sport I ever did was horse riding. So I had my first horse at seven and it sort of progressed from doing a bit of everything to specialising in dressage. And at 18, I had the option of like, I mean, by 14, 15, I was representing Team GB and I had the option of, yeah, it was awesome. And like that was my passion. That was my absolute love. But my parents are very academic. My dad's a doctor. My mom was a senior nurse and it was sort of you know go to university be a dentist it's a great career for a woman in adverted commas from my dad um I know no comment and yeah it was, I just had to leave riding behind and so I've always had that passion for sport and it would have been something that it sort of 
well, luckily I'm in that position now, but with riding, it would have been, you know, you wake up every day and it doesn't feel like a job. It's just something that you love and it's such a passion that, yeah, I think it would have been amazing. But I mean, with every kind of sport, unless you make it to the top and unless you're sort of Olympic athlete level, which I don't know, who knows what would have happened. It's very hard to make a good career yeah. and a good living out of it. So I think ultimately I made the right choice. So at 18, I left, sold my horse, went to dental school and was there for five years. Never honestly really liked dental school, never really liked teeth, just persevered with it. And I say this to so many um, students that are there now that message me and just sort of say, I hate dental school, what should I do? Um, and I was like, honestly, I didn't like it, but just get it done. So that's what I did. Got it done for five years. And then after dentistry, you do a foundation training year. So I moved from Bristol, where I went to uni, down to Surrey. And I was in a place called Hinchley Wood in Isha, living in Hampton Court. I was there for a good year and then got a different dental job straight after that but during that time I qualified in facial aesthetics so I did my foundation dermal and filler course and Botox course and obviously found my love for aesthetics and it's weird because I feel like it does overlap with sort of the, preci the precision of dressage and sort of the fine tuning I had to do throughout the whole of my life growing up and it's that sort of passion that I think that I've found in aesthetics that just led me to where I am today. So yeah, finally threw in the towel with dentistry and quit, when was it now? October last year. Oh, so this is recent. Yeah, it's really recent. Oh yeah, so did full-time aesthetics. And That's amazing. It, yeah. That's really cool. I love the parallel you draw between aesthetics and dressage. So I'm a horse rider as well. Oh, um, you? Okay, amazing. Yeah, I don't know how you were able to sell your horse. I mean, that must Do be you know what? I mean, heartbreaking. Yeah, it's the worst thing in the world. Um, but when you get to sort of more elite levels of riding, you don't actually own your horse. So you have yeah. an owner and you're the rider. So True. I say we sold it, but we gave it back to the owner. So it wasn't as much as a heartbreaking thing as like my pony, my dressage team pony, like selling her was yeah. just the worst thing in the world. Later on, it's more you have them on loan and you just you just yeah. give them True. back. True. True. But yeah, I have I have my horse, and at the moment, obviously, I can't ride because I'm pregnant. But I go and see him, and I'm just oh, I miss him so much. Oh, and then yeah, it gets to that yeah. point where I'm like, I I want to see him being ridden, but then I'm really jealous of whoever's riding him, and I'm just like, yeah, of course, uh, yeah. Um, baby. <laughs> but I I do a lot of um, dressage with him because when I was little, I used to ride, but never competitively. It was always more just casual riding and that sort of stuff, and then. I went to boarding school and was more interested in boys and sort of stopped riding and then fell back into it in my mid-twenties and then since then got even more and more and more obsessed with it and culminating in finally owning my horse that I'd been like saving up for since I was a little girl which was like yeah the dream yeah I mean I can't wait to go back to it yeah oh that's amazing but yeah doing dressage which is the thing that we've started to do and enter comps and obviously it's mm. a low level but it is all about precision and it is all about I love the partnership that there is with the horse mm. and how you know you strive to get that motion and that action and you know that you, what you do should not be seen and all of that sort of stuff and I think it's a really yeah. interesting parallel you draw with the aesthetics but it, because it is all about that search for perfection yeah 
and for it not to be noticed by other people yeah so yeah very similar it's weird how it's all worked out and to be honest like now that I go home to Wales I've started rising again for the first time in about 10 years started going down to my friend's yard and just getting on a horse again and it's just amazing I absolutely adore it so yeah I think when the time comes I'm very excited to get a horse again and just get back into it but at least I know and I guess my parents were right you know parents are always right in the end I've got my career now and I can just always go back to riding so yeah exactly as hard as it was in those first few years sort of thinking what have I done I've left like you know my love of riding behind um, and I'm doing something that I really don't like I can definitely go back to it and I've realized that I can now so yeah amazing and do you regard being multicultural as an advantage um, this is such an interesting question do you know I really do now but I didn't growing up and I've listened to so many talk about this in the sense that I absolutely hated not being white when I was growing up so I grew up in a very white area a very white school as well there very rarely any people of color around like for example even now my dad's really the only Asian person in our little Welsh village and we're the only brown people so everyone can spot us whenever we go and they know who we are and I hated it like I used to cry myself to sleep at night I used to say to my mum I just want to rip my skin off and just be white and all this kind of stuff yeah and I mean like I know my partner feels the same way like he used to be embarrassed about his culture as well and his dad wore a turban and he used to absolutely hate him coming to like football matches and stuff and be so embarrassed about him and like now we look back and we're like how could we ever ever think that it's just it's crazy but yeah now obviously I absolutely adore it I love it and I wouldn't change it for the world but I just think it's so interesting how it changes throughout your life from something that you just despise and hate and just want to get rid of to something that you absolutely love and you cherish so much. Obviously coming from a mixed race family it must be difficult for you how do you identify when you're little? Yeah you know you identify more with the colour that you are so I would say I'm like I'm Indian when obviously I'm equally Ukrainian as I am Indian and I feel even now people sort of identify me as the color that I am rather than by actual ethnicity yeah but now obviously nobody can tell what ethnicity I am (laughs) I can pretty much make it up and people don't even know and I always get you know South American and I hardly ever get Indian and obviously never ever get Eastern European so (laughs) yeah it's it's a weird one. I, I do think that a lot of people just sort of see skin colour and just assume mm. one rather than both. That's such a shame. Yeah. And growing up, what pressures did you feel from your family? Obviously, you mentioned that your parents sort of wanted you to have an academic career. Were there mm. any other pressures from a cultural aspect that you felt from your family? Um, cultural, not so much. But my grandma was very religious. So she was a sort of lady that used to so she lived with us um until she passed but she used to have sort of a statue of the virgin mary in her room and pray with her rosaries every day and you know like read her bible and she was so religious and because of that we were very much so my dad was actually a christian indian which is quite unusual so because of that we went to we went to um, church every sunday went to sunday school we did our first holy communion and we were very regimented in that and it was right until my grandma passed away. And as soon as she did, my mum, because she was on my mum's side, my mum just found going to church too difficult because it was 
a place that we just associated with her so much mm. that it almost became too difficult to even go, which is now not a great excuse. But at the time, the way that she passed was just so tragic and so heartbreaking that it was just, yeah, we just let it all go. In terms of culture and religion, that was the biggest influence in my life. My dad's side of the family, we didn't really speak to as much. He was very traditional Indian and obviously him marrying a white woman didn't go down very well. So there was always that kind of rift in the family. Um, And because of that, yeah, we just didn't see his side very much. So yeah, the Ukrainian side was the biggest influence on my life. And, you know, we had Ukrainian food all the time and my grandma used to cook it all. So we were very much familiar with that side of eating a lot more than the Indian side. But obviously my dad missed it because he grew up with it so much. So my mum got very familiar with the Indian side of cooking as well. So we did have a good fusion. And my mum's an insane cook. She's just the best. I mean, everyone says that, right? But yeah, she she is brilliant. And we did have that amazing sort of fusion of like cuisines growing up. But yeah, I mean, as I said before, the biggest sort of pressure, I would say, would be education. And do you see any correlations between the Ukrainian and Indian cultures? Because obviously they're very different, but Mm. are there any similarities or things that you've picked up on as you've grown up with those two cultures? Yeah, I mean, as I said, the religion was the same for us. So that made it very easy. I think if my dad had been like Hindu or even Sikh, I think it would have been really different. So I almost feel a bit, I mean, I it sounds really strange, but if I use, use the word like coconut, where I'm brown, but I was so white on the inside that I was so uncultured, <laughs> um, and embarrassingly so. I mean, when I met my partner, he had to educate me on the whole, his whole culture, because I just didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about Indian culture, even though I am half Indian. I just, yeah, I knew nothing. So, yeah, I lived a, a very white life, I would say, until sort of my late 20s but yeah the biggest correlation I would say it was the religion for me I just had such an influence from my Ukrainian side that I didn't really have much to compare to my Indian side and speaking about your partner where is he from exactly he's Sikh his family live in the Midlands but yeah he's Sikh and how does he manage your cultural blend because obviously you said that he's had to teach you about Indian heritage but how does he manage with your Ukrainian cooking and all of that sort of stuff I mean you say this now I mean even though we ate like that growing up typical grandma she never told anyone any recipes so she would just do her own thing (laughs) speaking Ukrainian and no one would know what she's doing even my mum can't recreate her recipes and you know you get Ukrainian cookbooks and it just never ever tastes anything like hers so yeah he hasn't really experienced that side of anything yet He loves the cultural blend, I would say. He's always said that. And even though his family is Sikh and his his dad in particular was quite religious, his family is still quite westernised. So it's obviously never been an issue in terms of the fact that I'm I'm not personally Sikh. You know, being mixed race myself, I think it's really nice to sort of have lots of different cultures. Bring so much more to the relationship, I think. That's so nice, though, that his family, even though they're Sikh, they're very accepting of you Mm, not being Sikh and they're not trying to make you want to become Sikh yeah I mean he did buy me their Sikh thing I'll show you now the bracelet yeah for anniversary and he was like you're now a Sikh girl and I was like "Mm, okay not sure about that (laughs) 
what do you love the most about your profession? My clients. I absolutely love my clients now. It's such such a different job to dentistry. I mean, I get so much more job satisfaction from what I do now. The patient gratitude is so good that it makes the job satisfaction even better. And I've always said, you know, people say, you know, do you see a difference between aesthetics and dentistry? Absolutely 100%. I think with dentistry, especially if you're part NHS, which I was, I was mixed NHS private, you are so busy, you are one in, one out. And it's almost like you forget to see the patient behind the mouth. You're just you're treating the problem and they're out the door again. And I hated that. I hated not having like good quality time with my patient, like really understanding the problem, you know, talking about their life and what really concerns them. And with my job now, I can do that. I can sit them down and really have an in-depth conversation with them about, about what bothers them and their concerns. And I can just give them time. And I think as an aesthetic practitioner, like time is one of the biggest things that you can give to your patients to make them feel comfortable and to make them feel valued. And I absolutely love that part of the job. Um, and obviously it comes with so much more flexibility. So, yeah. you know, instead of working all hours, you can choose your job hours a lot more. And I've recently got into teaching. So over the last year, I've been teaching aesthetics as well, which I love. And it's just another avenue that I never thought I would love. But yeah, aesthetics and teaching is just brilliant. And it just really fills my cup. I absolutely adore it. And even though the hours for the teaching are long, you know, I come back at the end of the day and I'm like, doesn't even feel like I did any work. I just... I love it. I love sharing my knowledge and sort of teaching, teaching other medics, like different aesthetic skills. I think it's, I think it's great. Amazing. And what do you, so do you focus mainly on the facial area? Yeah. Yeah. So I just do facial area from neck and above. Amazing. So Botox, fillers. Mm-hmm. Um, so Botox, fillers, skincare as well. So I'm an ambassador for a big medical skincare brand called Abaji Medical medical grade skincare so it's home skincare that sort of you would provide a regime for a patient and they would go home and use it at home and then that might be combined with medical grade skin peels or for example medical microneedling so um, I use a mechanical skin pen device which just needles the face to stimulate collagen growth so that can help with like anti-aging and scar reduction and that can actually be used on multiple areas of the body so it can even be used for like hair regeneration on the head scar reduction on any part of the body or acne scarring particularly on the back the chest and obviously the face as well amazing mm. i had botox done not for aesthetic purposes but for migraines okay, and yeah. it changed my life That's i used amazing, to have chronic migraines and tried different pills Either they didn't work or either they started to give me side effects, which were depression, which was really preferred to have migraines and be depressed. Of course. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were daily every day. They'd come at around the same time and there was no way of getting it. I had to like close all the curtains, have all the lights down. I mean, it wasn't Mm. healthy. And one day my um, neurologist said, well, we can try Botox. I was Mm. like, oh, thank you. I'm too young for Botox. And he was like, no, no, but it's, I think it's 36 or 38 injections. And it's it's, a lot. I did my master's on this actually. Oh, it's the first time it's painful, but then you know what to expect because it's all around your forehead, your temples, um, behind your ears. That's the worst one because there is absolutely no fat. And then it goes down your neck, shoulders, and then you're Mm -hmm. done. And they just don't happen anymore. I did it every three months the first year 
And then yeah. I was fine for about three years. And then I had to do a top right. up three years after. And it lasts about three years. And it means that I get a migraine every three months, four months. Okay. And for that, I just have like a pill that I can control with. And that's yeah. it. That's amazing. Yeah, my whole master's was on Botox to treat um, TMJD, which is jaw problems. Oh, and yeah, they do migraine. that as well, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's such a fascinating subject area. And obviously, so many people think that Botox is just used for anti wrinkle injections. But yeah, it's so much more than that. And a large part of what I do is Botox to stop tooth grinding and clenching. So That's it does amazing. have. Yeah. So it has cosmetic advantages in the sense that it slims the jaw because as you grind your teeth, your jaw gets wider and your face gets wider. So for a lot of females, obviously, they don't like having a square face due to their enlarged jaw muscles. Yeah. So, yeah, as well as obviously removing pain, removing clenching and tooth grinding, it slims the face. So, yeah, it's a, such a good treatment. But it's really interesting because I remember also a few years ago, once I'd already done it for my migraines, I had my left shoulder there was a nerve that was basically spasming constantly and it mm. was so painful. I mean, there are some days I could barely get dressed by myself. Like it got really bad. The sports doctor that I was seeing about it said, you know, we could try injecting Botox into the nerve and it would sort of calm it down. And I was like, oh yeah, that's fine. I've had Botox for migraine, so go for it. And he was like, oh, usually it takes a lot more convincing to explain to people. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 it's fine. And it was fascinating because he actually had the sort of the, um, the thing to see on the screen, the liquid going in. So I was able to see it actually go in and react and sort of spread out. Never needed to do it again. Completely sorted out the problem really? and I was fine the next day. Like It's fascinating. I think that with Botox, there's so many more avenues that can be explored. And, Absolutely, yeah. You know, yeah, when I do do it for my migraines and I do it all over my forehead, yeah, I can't, you know, I don't have <laughs> any <move>. wrinkles for <laughs> a few months. And if he, the first time he did it, he went a little bit too heavy on top of my eyebrows. So my eyebrows sort of like sunk oh, a touch. No. Um, yeah that's the trouble when you're doing it for medical purposes not cosmetic right is it it's not designed to give you a nice cosmetic result and I I remember I was staying with a friend and I woke up and she was like something's changed on your face but I can't figure out what and literally we were in front of the mirror for a good 10 minutes and I was like this doesn't look like me but I can't figure out what it is and then we were like oh it's my eyebrows they dropped by like a millimeter or two Action. yeah but it's it enough to completely change your face it is it's and amazing, from then yeah. on I was always like can we please not do anything around the eyebrows please because they just like dropped yeah it's interesting it's probably more the forehead that drops the brows down so oh, really oh. I mean I don't know how much um how much detail you want to go into with this but <laughs> yeah it's to do with the forehead muscles because that's your main elevator muscle so if that's weakened too much oh. then this is a depressor oh. so the frown gets stronger and it pulls the brows down. Oh, interesting. Last question. Do you see yourself as a role model for other practitioners, for women, for mixed race women, for Indian women? It's weird. I don't know. I I wouldn't say I am at all. But I mean, the messages that I get and, you know, the time that people take to send me long voice notes and messages and even emails about their situation and how like me making the switch and sort of documenting my switch from dentistry to aesthetics has been such an inspiration for them. 
um, and it's something that they want to do would imply that I guess somewhat I am a role model but yeah obviously I hate, I hate using that term myself but yeah I don't know I just think that the information I put out there you know if it helps one person then amazing if it helps multiple people then wow blows my mind but I think as I said before I think a lot of people that are doing dentistry just don't like it and don't know that there's other ways they can use that degree to get out of dentistry I think it's not like another degree that you can do at university where you come out and you've got lots of different avenues you can go down you study dentistry so in your head when you leave you think dentistry is all I can do whereas in actual fact you know you've done five years of really in-depth head and neck anatomy so you're really well placed and then go on and actually inject the face much more so I would say than a doctor because they do the whole body in five years whereas all we do is head and neck for five years so in terms of aesthetics and given the fact that all we do is inject each day you know we're injecting we're giving local anesthetic for um, injections around the teeth given that we're so much more used to injecting the face so I think that we are really well placed to actually go on to be aesthetic practitioners um, and I think it's just such an ever-evolving industry right now it's still relatively new so because of that I think people are still learning about it and still exploring it but obviously people coming out of university now like even the messages I get are sort of you know I'm in third year when can I start thinking about doing aesthetics and I'm like okay hold you've got a long way to go yet you need to build up your clinical skills you need to learn how to take a good medical history conduct a consultation like you've got a long way to go so People are definitely more aware of aesthetics than they were when I qualified five years ago, which just shows the growth of the industry. So, yeah, I do think that a lot of people sort of rely on me to sort of make their career choices, which is extremely scary. And I obviously keep relaying back. I am not a careers advisor. However, if you do want to study aesthetics, <laughs> finish your degree and then have a look at it. But, yeah, I do think that a lot of dentists have kind of come to me and sort of said, thank you, like, because of you, I've made the switch or I've cut down my days of dentistry and I'm only doing one day and now I'm just doing aesthetics. And again, it's the best decision I've ever made because it's just such a different pace of life. It's it's just so enjoyable versus the grind of dentistry. So, yeah, I do, I guess, think that, you know, I can provide a lot of information for different um, different people. Amazing. And I think it's great that you do it and, you know, you obviously it's your perspective and it's what you've chosen to do but you know I think that it's great that people have somebody to ask that has actually done the transition and that you're being Mm. completely honest about it it's time for the bitch fire round But listen, it's now time for the bitch fire question round. So I will ask you questions, for example, dog or cat? And your answer would be? Dog, absolutely. Dog, perfect. So Netflix or Prime? Netflix. Bath or shower? Ooh, shower. ASOS or Zara? Zara. Sweet or savory? Savory. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Winter or summer? Summer. City or countryside? Countryside, 100%. (laughs) Vintage or new? Ooh, new with vintage inspiration. (laughs) (laughs) Instagram or Twitter? Instagram, I don't even have Twitter. And then one special one just for you. Ukrainian food or Indian food? Oh my God. (laughs) I do like Ukrainian starter and Indian main. (laughs) (laughs) 
cheeky but i'll accept it um well listen jess thank you so much for joining us today on bonjour bitch it's been an absolute pleasure to have you can you please remind us of your social media handle of course thank you so much for having me it's been amazing so i've got two instagrams one is personal and one is my business so my personal one is jess shriv that's j-e triple s R-I-V. And then my doctor page is Dr. Jess, that's D-R Jess dot aesthetics. Amazing. Well, listen, thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in. And we'll speak to you soon. And see you soon, hopefully, Jess, once all of this lockdown craziness is over. Yeah, definitely. All right. Thank, thank you, you so much. Bye. Bye. Remember to tune in next Monday for a brand new episode and please rate and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It really does help us out. We'll see you then. Au revoir, bitches.